Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. Joining me today is writer Fran Wilde, whose earlier novel Updraft won the Andre Norton and Compton Crook Award and has been nominated for The Nebula. The sequel is Cloudbound. Fran is also the author of the novella The Jewel and Her Lapidary and many short stories that have been published at places like Asimov, Store.com and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. She also hosts an interview series called Cooking the Books. Fran, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a long while that we've been trying to organize this. I'm <laughs> we were for that, so organized. Um, we just couldn't figure out what day it was. Time zones, really, what day it was. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> to be honest, on the best of days, I don't know what day it is. So. <laughs> it's only school, my kid's school, that keeps me going. That's how I know what day it is. I've noticed when they're out for the holidays, it's really hard to remember it is. what it is. what is a weekend. All right, let's talk first about Updraft and Cloudbound, the new book, the second book. Uh, For those who haven't read either, will you tell us a little bit about the world they're set in and what each of the stories is about? I'm happy to. Uh, The the world of the Bone Universe series is set uh, above the clouds on towers of living bone. Characters and and people who live there fly back and forth between towers on man-made wings there are predators, um, giant, invisible, flying, carnivorous cephalopods among them called skymouths. And um, a new monster in Cloudbound is called a bone eater, which in a city of living bone is kind of problematic. So in Updraft, the main character, Kirit, is um, about to leave home. She wants to be a trader. Um, a a trader of goods like her mother. Um, But she discovers that because she um, has, has committed a crime, she's broken a law. She, her life changes tremendously. And um, in the course of fighting against that change, she changes the city that she lives in. Um, It's a, it's a book about voice. It's a book about not just Kirit's voice, but um, who gets heard in a community and who doesn't. It's, um, there's a lot in the story about singing and memory, um, as well as fighting in, in the air in giant wind tunnels with wings and knives and all sorts of things. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a, a very fast paced adventure, um, alongside some, um, investigation about community. So where did this originate from, this world, these stories? What came first, the plot, the characters, the world? With Updraft, um, I wrote a short story about a winged knife fight in a wind tunnel. And I, I, it was set in a world that I had written another short story in where the wind tunnel was created by from within a Tower of Living Bones. So I knew that I was using the, the Bone University um, already. The original Bone University was a short story writing challenge that I did in response to a prompt. Um, and I wanted to, the, the, the writing challenge was about mega cities, which are giant cities, and, and they're um, something that I love. And originally I had set out to write an, um, an automated city that was sort of driven from internally by a computer. And that um, 
at about one o'clock in the morning and the challenge was due at noon the next day, uh, I decided to throw all that out, that that really wasn't what I wanted. And um, I started writing a much more organic city, which was the city of Living Bone. And the minute I started writing that, I realized that I had an opportunity to explore um, sort of highs and lows and physics and engineering and um, it fascinated me. And the first characters that I started with in that story, um, I didn't continue with in Updraft. Um, they, the names reappear later, but the, uh, the original knife fight in the wind tunnel was between Kirit and someone else in Updraft who, um, it became sort of the center of that novel in part because when I took it to my beta readers and said, hey, look, I wrote this short story, they said, we have lots of questions, and they're questions that will sort of grow the world out, like what kind of society um, makes people fight for the right to speak? And when I started looking at that, I started to really hear Kirit's voice, um, and that is where the, the, the book took off. Um, with Cloudbound, it's a little bit different because the, that's the second book in the world and the characters are similar, but I switched POVs, I switched narrators, and um, the story is told from Nat's perspective. And Nat is a very, very different person than Kirit, so it gave me the opportunity to not only explore the world and the politics of the world from a different perspective, but also to explore um, Nat and Kirit's relationship because they're friends and they've been friends for a very long time, but they are coming at this world from very different levels, quite literally. Was it difficult to change Dak, to change, you know, from being inside one character's mind to another? Oh, definitely. Kira is very, very compelling and she will be back. But um, it was also very refreshing and it was a great opportunity to try and... Um, to try and envision what, what another character would think of, of the world. The story is not a repeat. It's a it's about six months later and things have happened. And um, Nat's, Nat wants very, very much to be a leader in this community. Um, Kira is a leader, but she doesn't want to be. And Nat wants to be desperately, but he doesn't know how. So that that is one of the things that was sort of difficult to make that turn, but it, it was a lot of fun too. Um, the other thing is making sure that the voice is very different. Um, Kirit's voice is very much a, a forward-moving, you know, run-through-walls sort of thing. And Nat is much more, um, he thinks deeply about things and he considers connections and um, family and, and his community is really important to him. But he needs to sort of figure out what that means in the larger context. Now let's talk a little bit about airborne societies and setting essentially an adventure story in an airborne society. Many challenges there, of course, yes. for in a fight, as you said, <laughs> knife fights. You're also always fighting gravity, uh, amongst yep. other things. What was that process like reimagining a world where no one can walk on the earth? I know you've been a science light writer as well. So yes. to, to, that ex to some extent, did that help with sort of the physics and engineering involved in these stories? Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, gravity is is the big the biggest monster in the world um, that I wrote, and not in our world necessarily, but um, oh, that. Pretty bad in our world too. Yeah, gravity is pretty bad. Anyway, um, I, I think that I was a, a science writer for the Whiting School of Engineering at Johns Hopkins for some time, and I did science writing freelance for a number of other outlets. Um, 
and having that ability to sort of look at very tightly at the the structures of the wings and the bridges. Um, my family is engineers, sort of all the way down, um, and they've they've been building things in the United States for for generations. So a lot of the dinner table conversation that I grew up with was you know bridges and um, roads and all sorts of different structures, um, sewage systems, <laughs> in addition to everything else, and so. It, it, building a world based on engineering principles was something that really it, it enticed me and made me want to um, give all of the details. And you can't do that in fiction because it's very, very boring. But there's so much structure behind this. Um, having the towers be walkable, they can walk around the towers, but from to get from one tower to another, the fastest and most independent way is to fly. There are bridges. Um, this in updraft, the singers control who gets to have a bridge, and when they're built. So you are then reliant on another city's power structure in order to um, in order to get. You're not reliant. I need to correct that. You're now reliant on another group's sense of power and who deserves what in order to get back and forth between towers, which impacts trade, it impacts um, family relationships, it impacts politics. And um, because of that, that creates a structure where the, the groups that are closer to the people who can build the bridges become more powerful and more wealthy. Um, there's also an up-down structure to the the city and the culture's um, sense of itself, both externally and internally. Um, the clouds are something to be avoided because that's where the sky mouths are and that's where danger is from their cultural memory. Um, so they're constantly trying to move up away from the clouds. And on Towers of Living Bone, you can do that by raising the towers, but it becomes complicated because there is a, a place where that has to stop logically and biologically and everything else. Um, and they're almost there. The act of flying becomes sort of natural, like like walking or driving or riding a bike or sailing a boat. But it because it's in the air and because there are so many different angles that danger can come at you from, and we're very used to a very linear sense of danger um, until people started flying in airplanes, um, there wasn't much sense that you could be attacked from from below or from you know any direction really. And so you you look at the training that some of the early fighter pilots got, and definitely more um, now, you, they they had to think in in multiple dimensions and not just exercise their their battle plans um, looking out and straight ahead or to the sides. It was also had to be up down and sideways. So. This, when the sky mouths attack, they can attack from anywhere. They can come up from underneath you. They can come from the sides. And gravity as well works in that way. Um, falling is one of the, the scariest things in the Bone universe, um, in part because if you fall, you fall into the clouds and you're lost. And that's something that's embedded both in the culture and in the physical aspects of the, of the universe. Did you have a Bible a world-building Bible, because as you said, of course, you have to be very careful about, you know, uh, the whole show, don't tell, and info dumps and all the rest of it. Yes. So, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the information, you know, at the back end of things, as it were. So did you have a Bible? Do you, I should say, have one? 
<laughs> quite a bit of one. Um, I have maps I, that I've drawn myself. I have um, a lot of sketches that I do. I draw um, almost, I draw a lot of the time just for stress release and everything else. And that um, gave me a place to work out some of the things like scale and um, draw what my sense of the wings were. Uh, but of course, the, the cover artist, Tommy Arnold, did a tremendous job yeah, translating that. It's, they're so amazing. I mean, he's, he has really um, been amazing to work with because he sees what I'm doing and translates that onto a single sheet of paper. And um, every time he comes out with something, I'm just delighted. So yes, I do. I, um, I'm notorious for in, in other sides of my life for spreadsheets. I keep spreadsheets on, you know, everything, what, what interviews I'm doing, what kind of, um, projects I'm working on, how, what the word count is on those. And, and I didn't do a spreadsheet for the bone universe, but instead I have sort of a sketch sheet and I have a book where I sketch things for it and I write down notes and I write which towers have bridges and, and all those things. The one thing that I didn't do, which is like baby writer 101, is I didn't write down eye color for my characters. I had to go back and, and figure out what the eye color was on a couple of characters for the second book. And I was kicking myself. Just when you think you've got it all covered, right? You figured out the sewage, but you didn't figure out the eye color. Well, one of my, yes, exactly. That's, it. you know, that's like the, how, how, um, how many times have people said, don't forget to write down your character's eye color? Um, it's funny, though, that you mentioned the, the sewage, because when I first started talking about the Vone universe, I did an interview with a podcast called Skiffy and Fanti. And we started off normally. And then I mentioned that I have um, a great love for a, a book called The Ghost Map, which is set in London, and it's about um, tracing cholera. And just the whole idea of how water and sewage and, and everything work in a community and how that can translate to impact the community positively or negatively. Um, with with the bone universe, because it's so vertical, that comes in in um, subtle ways in the book because you don't you want to know that things are safely taken care of, but you don't really want to hear all of it. And there there's a, a whole system of removing things that, that the city doesn't want. Um, mostly by throwing it down into the clouds that predicates the need to live higher up because it's much nicer up there than it is down below. Um, the other thing I did was I did a lot of studies on, on bone growth and also horn growth and um, discovered that there are lots and lots of bone structures that grow from the center out and just keep expanding if they're not restricted or if there's something else that doesn't happen. So it gave me the ability to build these towers that would continue to rise on central cores for the most part, where the cores would eventually expand out, providing support on the bottom and pressing the community out so that they would have to move up as well, which was really nice. And useful. Yes. <laughs> useful to have real life things to, you know, grow on, as it were. I, I love taking uh, real things that are real to us and modifying them to make them much more extreme and much more um, secondary world or science fictional. The, the, uh, the sky mouse are like that. The bone eaters are very much like that. They're, um, the base element of a bone eater is uh, a lammergeier which is a kind of vulture um, that takes its prey up 
about a half mile and then drops it so that it can get at the marrow inside the, the bones of its prey. All right, moving on to the novella The Jewel and Her Lapidary, which I know best because in full disclosure, I did the audio version of that. Where did that story come from? I was so excited Um, to do it. It was so exciting to be asked. But where did did that story come from? And and do you really know so much about setting gemstones? I do. Um, I worked as a jeweler in college. I was not, I worked as a, let me take that back because that is not true. I worked as a jeweler's assistant in college and they were helping me train for my GIA, which is a genologist um, certification because they thought that that would be useful for me. Um, I, I did more um, polishing and finishing work than I did actual settings, but I was in the, the um, jeweler's office watching them set everything and listening to their conversations and learning about all of the different gems that they worked with. And occasionally I would get some bench time and get to practice on my own which was really fun. I'm much more experienced with soldering things together and um, making handcrafted pieces using fire and and melty things, uh, which I really love. But yes, many years um, polishing other people's jewelry <laughs> and um, got very familiar with that, did some very clumsy things along the way. But it, it, got, it gave me an awareness of gemstones and also um, the, the emotions that circle around gems that was really helpful writing not just the jewel in her lapidary but all of the other stories that kind of chain in that world um it, it, there are there's one other story published um it's a short story called the topaz marquee and that's a beneath ceaseless skies and that is a story that is set in the gem universe much much later than the jewel in her lapidary what you read was probably the the origin story for all of it because it's about how the jewels get out. So did the story come from your experience in, you know, jewelry shops? Is that directly linked to this? Um, I think that my, my knowledge of um, bezels and bindings and um, settings definitely came from that. I, I was interested in exploring the concept of Um, gemstones and their power over people, but they're also their power to amplify people. Because you see when somebody puts on a a beautiful stone or puts on a necklace, they kind of change their stature, they they change their their aspect. And listening to people come into the jeweler's shop occasionally, they would talk about, you know, what kind of gems they wanted. And the, the jeweler would pull out something and you could hear their voice change a little bit as they saw the stone that they really wanted. So I wanted to explore that pull and that emotional strike, but I wanted to amplify it a lot. And so that's how you get um, things like the Stark Kobashan, which can control minds. And you get, um, there were a couple of other jewels mentioned early that got broken that um, helped cloak the, um, the jeweled valley from its enemies. And it did that by just basically con- the gem would convince anyone that was coming in that there was nothing here to see. So these are very powerful kind of mind-bending gems, and they're not nice at all. They, um, they whisper to people, and they can drive them crazy. So in order to keep those gems at bay, there was a system that the community that, that originally dug them up uh, established to make sure that um, 
whoever was ruling the Jeweled Valley would have a, a two-part, kind of a two-part rulership where one group could hear and control the gems and one group could make decisions for the population because it's not really a good idea to have both in the same, both sets of power in the same hands. And as the story of the jewel in her lapidary opens, that power balance has been dramatically shifted so that one group is much more in control and the other group has, has, has lost power but are still tremendously loyal to the, the, the community and to the valley and are, are desperately trying to um, control a situation where they can hear something that's rather supernatural and not very good for them. Um, but if they can manage to control it, they have a lot of power. So what was your first love, short stories or longer narratives, as a reader and as a writer? Um, it was short stories. And definitely um, because I'm trained as a poet as well, I, I have an MFA in poetry, I, I lean towards concision. I try to say as much as I can in with using as few words as possible. And sometimes that um, that that tendency, I, I really do need to work hard to stretch things out. But in short stories, that's that's something that um, I think serves me pretty well. My first short stories published were all under a thousand words. They were there were a couple of short stories that were flash. One was in Nature magazine, which is a science magazine, um, and that one um, was about seven hundred words. And just moving up from there, I've gotten longer and longer. But I discovered that um, a lot of my stories, I can, I can grow just by unpacking the ideas inside them. Your podcast, Cooking the Books, is about food and fiction, but not necessarily about food in fiction. Um, mm-hmm. How did that come about? Is it just a devious way to talk to people about writing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now we've told everyone. <laughs> Um, it came about because in 2011, I was very, very shy of talking to people about their craft, but I wanted to very much. And I had made a deal with myself that I would do something that scared me every, every now and then. And the idea of interviewing people I respected greatly about their work terrified me. Um, but I gave it a shot. I had been um, talking with Stephen Gould who is the author of Jumper and Impulse, as well as um, a number of other really wonderful books that he's writing um, for the, the Avatar series. He's writing some of the, the, the novels for the Avatar series now. He and I were sitting at the Viable Paradise workshop and talking about writing and cooking. And I mentioned that I had um, a cookbook that my mother-in-law had given me, which was, um, my, my in-laws were in, um, they had done some traveling and they had worked with uh, the State Department at one point and had a cookbook from the State Department that had a, had a recipe, had a bunch of recipes in the back that were kind of not meant to be taken seriously, but were, you know, to, to follow up all of the other recipes that uh, traveling families in working in different countries would, would like to cook. There were a few that were, you know, cobra stew, and, and one, of the, one of the instructions was, was first catch cobra, and then there was elephant stew. And which is a, entirely a joke, and and do not recommend it. But it was um, the first instruction is first cut elephant into bite sized pieces, and that in and of itself is um, something that made me 
laugh at the time, but it also made Stephen Gould say, you know, that sounds like writing a novel. That's how you do it. You cut the whole giant plot into bite-sized pieces, and then you work on those pieces. And I thought, that's a really interesting thing to say. Would you like to be interviewed on this topic? So it sort of started out from a, a terrible, very silly recipe in an old cookbook and conversation with Stephen Gould that turned into the first interview for Cooking the Books. And that was five years ago. Tell me, were you always going to be a writer? Was teenage Fran Wilde already set on this path of, you know, making up fantastical stories? <laughs> teenage Fran into, into bite-sized pieces. I, that sounds so horrible now. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I have no ambitions, nor have I ever had any ambitions to cut up an elephant. But the... Metaphorically um, speaking. Metaphorically speaking, I was, I was writing... Um, I have always been a, telling stories. I had grew up in a storytelling family. Um, most of those were um, told, you know, sitting around the table where the speaker would continue to tell the story until they were done and everybody would listen. And sometimes those narratives changed in the telling or they changed in the second telling. And I was fascinated by that. But in high school, I kind of hid the fact that, I, A, I was um, very interested in science fiction and B, that I was writing anything but poetry. I was, everybody knew that I was writing poetry. I was, you know, head of the literary magazine. I did lots of things. When I went off to college, I went to study with Rita Dove and Charles Wright and um, Greg Orr at University of Virginia. And then I went to get my MFA from that. But all the time I was sort of writing these beginnings of stories or plots. And I never finished one. I didn't finish one. Um, all through college. I didn't finish. I did a lot of starts in when I was doing my MFA. And then again, when I was doing my MA, I have a master's in information architecture and interaction design. And when I went um, to, I became a programmer and I started doing um, lots of interactive web development as well as game design. And I still wasn't finishing stories. Uh, I didn't actually finish my first story until 2010. So six years ago. And look at you now. Mm, yeah, you can't shut me up. <laughs> now, anything you'd like to tell, you know, teenage Fran Wilde about creative writing? Oh, my gosh. Um, don't, I, I, if I could go back and tell myself a couple of things, I would say don't be afraid to be weird. Because I was so afraid to, um, for anybody to know who I was for lots of different reasons. But I also um, would probably just say, finish the darn story. <laughs> That's really important. How much have your reading tastes evolved in terms of likes and dislikes since when you were younger? I am a pretty voracious reader. I was reading Marquez in high school and Milton. Um, I found Italo Calvino in college. But my science fiction and fantasy tastes evolved very early because someone gave me a copy of one of Gardner Dozois' best of um, anthologies. And I was pretty young at the time. I also was um, had a local bookstore that was sharing with me some of their, I turned out to be ARCs and advanced reader copies, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, I just knew that this these were... Um, books of fiction that I couldn't necessarily get and bring home otherwise. So I read Orson Scott Card and I read Jack Chalker. Those weren't arcs. Um, I got some Anne McCaffrey out of that that was just 
pretty wonderful for me. And then I started reading Clive Barker and Weave World and stuff like that in high school, mostly at the library because um, I was supposed to be you know, reading more serious books, or at least fantasy was okay um, at home. But I've, I read a lot of other things. And when I got to college and when I emerged from that, I found that I could read anything I wanted. And I did. I read everything. Um, lately, I have been reading, um, because I, I was on... Um, an award jury last year for the Pacific Northwest, and now I'm serving on the Norton Award jury this year. I'm reading so much great, great, great fiction, and it's all new and new to me, and, and the things that people are writing about are amazing. Okay, some quick questions that I don't want you to think too much about before answering them. Okay. Okay? <laughs> Dragons or aliens? Dragons. Why? Because dragons are um, massive and they have a, a sense of humor. And basically my answer to you is Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> All right, regular spaceships or time machines? Yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Cheating. All right. Yes, I, I am. But, I mean, don't, who doesn't want a time machine that also can travel through space? Yes, I want a spaceship with a time machine in it. That would yes. be useful. Feathery wings or leathery wings? Ooh, um, silk wings. But if I had to choose after that, probably leathery wings because feathers get everywhere. And, you know, you can't really repair feathers as well, can you? No. That's the trouble with natural things. Mm, but, now, you know, birds, watching birds fly, they, they're pretty tremendous. Have you ever done any paragliding? I did once. I jumped <sighs> off a mountain in Nepal. It was kind of insane. Oh, my gosh. Tell me about that. It was crazy. I want to hear. I don't know what I was doing. I mean, I couldn't do it alone, of course, because I wasn't certified. Yeah. So you had to do it in tandem because you're not actually tethered to anything. Yes. Um, so there's yeah. a guy sort of behind me and he had a little meter that beeped when it told him about air currents shifting and they kind of, you know, hooked onto one air current and the other, basically the way birds fly. It was incredible. It was one of the most amazing experiences I think I'll ever have. I'm making tiny screeching sounds because that yeah. sounds awesome. Did you ever try I... that before the books? I went indoor skydiving in um, in a wind tunnel up in New Hampshire, which uh, was a commercial facility, but it was also where um, the West Point skydiving team was training for the winter. So we got to see them train and then we got to go in and do it ourselves, which was amazing because just the, the, the motion of the body and how everything shifts um, affects the physics of everything. So right. that was great to see. My experience with wind is um, decades of sailing. I, I grew up sailing really cheap plastic dinghies on the Chesapeake Bay and um, learned about wind and currents and everything that way. But um, I didn't want to write a sailing book. I wanted to write a flying book. So what you're talking about where he has the beeper and he's sensing the wind currents like birds do, I spent so much time watching birds soar the gusts and the vents right. up, uh, you know, that I just... Um, realized that I needed to physically go and get into something so that I could feel what that felt like. So that was the reason for the wind tunnel. But jumping off a mountain in Nepal would certainly be on my bucket list now. <laughs> That's amazing. Is there going to be a sailing book ever? I have to ask now. I really want there to be a sailing book. I love reading sailing books. I actually, on tour.com, I, I posted my list of my, my top favorite books with boats in them. Um, I have a collection of 
of them. And there are, there are books that I love that have boats in them that I just kind of move past the boat descriptions really quickly. So sometimes it's, it's really hard to do right. Um, but when you do it right, the sailing community knows it's just like any other expertise area. Right. Um, there's always people I, on the internet waiting to catch you out, right? Well, yeah, that's it's not even that. It's just it's something where it feels right um, up until the point where you hit somebody who lives this, and so it's important to do your research for that for that reason. With sailing, um, I have my own built-in research. I have a, a naval architect, a marine engineer in the family, and um, we've we've been sailing for a long time. I, I taught sailing. So yes, I would love there to be a sailing book. Um, it's not quite there in my head yet, but um, the wing test in updraft, everybody refers to it as a driving test. It's not, it's actually um, based on the Coast Guard certification test um, because in when you're in the air right away is extremely important just as it is on the water where you have no designated direction that people should go. So I really wanted to use that right of way um, signaling and how to fly with a group like like a flock of birds does without endangering everybody. Without um, a so whole set of air traffic controllers. Exactly, because that's really important. Right. <laughs> so my last question now is, is, if you had a superpower, what would it be other than flying and sailing? Oh, oh unfair. So. If I had a superpower, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a mom and you're a mom. So basically our superpower is being able to see all the things that are left on the stairs. I going would say up. never sleep, like survive. Yeah. Sleep. That would be because then you'd be able to see everything left on the stairs or the That's Lego in true. the dark, or, you know. I think if I could choose any superpower, it would be to be able to write all of the stories that I have in my head. That's what I would like to do. That's a very honest superpower. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you took flying, so... Well, I mean, flying was just too obvious. You couldn't have it. You cheated already. I gave you one. We're done now. Oh, no. All right, so what's next? There's another book in this uh, universe, isn't there? Yes, there and, is. And more in, in the Jewel in the Lapidary series as well. Absolutely more in the Jewel in Her Lapidary series. Um, I'm working on a larger story in that world that is set much later, and in a different part of the world, but the gems are back. Um, some familiar characters are back as well. And then um, I just finished what we're calling Horizon, which is the third book in the Bone Universe series. Again, some familiar characters are back as well in point of view positions, and it's currently in editing. So we should, we'll see it next year, next fall. Um, in the meantime, I'm working on uh, a couple of other. Uh, high-tech fantasy novels and um one of one of which is a high-tech fantasy novel and the other is um a much younger book that i am currently really enjoying writing but it's also pretty scary because so i've never done way, it before oh, well you're on your way to the superpower then yes i'm trying yeah. <laughs> all right well thank you so much for speaking with me today thank you very much for having me this has been a pleasure <laughs>